You're listening to the Warrior Priest Podcast. And this is the Warrior Priest Podcast, episode 49. And I am the Warrior Priest, Donovan Riley. It is June 6th, 2020, as of this recording. And I am here in my office studio with my iPad and the text queued up with my kombucha at hand. And I don't know about you, but it's been a long week again. A lot has happened personally. A lot has happened to people around me. And I'm sure for you too, it's been very stressful. A lot of anxiety possibly, fear, insecurity even. And that's to be expected, not only socially, that the social unrest and discord that has not only now spread from Minneapolis to the rest of the United States, but now from the United States around the rest of the world. And the corporate media in particular goes back and forth between talking about COVID-19 again and talking about the rioting. The president postures, as do the Democratic incumbents. And it's difficult, at least for myself, I should say, it's difficult because then you go online, you go on social media, and the herd mentality, the desire to be a part of the in-group, the cool kids, to be blunt, drives people one way or the other. You have contrarians who react against some group decision online. We're all going to post black boxes on our social media page, so then people post the opposite on their pages and call them out for being sheep. And then you have those like myself, I tend to, well, like George Carlin said, if I see a group of people running one direction, I have a tendency to go the other direction. I don't trust large groups of people. There's plenty of research, psychological research, social research, anthropological research that says that each of us individually, we're, you know, we're kind of dumb and we don't really know that much, even though we like to believe we do, but in large groups, we're even dumber and there's even less communication and critical thinking. It's called diffusion of responsibility. I've talked about it before on the show. It essentially just removes the responsibility from me as an individual to think for myself, speak for myself, and act independently of others because I'm in a large group and it's a herd and we're all going the same direction. So how can you blame me for what happened? To that point, though, for those of us who have been around a while, have experience maybe, or just for those of you who are smart and you pay attention and you listen and, and you look and you think and you question things. At least for myself, I notice patterns. I'm a pattern recognition type of person. That's the way my brain functions. I've had to practice and train and learn how to think analytically and think in, ter- in sequences, one, two, three, four, up to 10, because I tend to see patterns. So I tend to see the question, number one, I look for the solution, number two, and then I just jump to 10. I find the pattern and then I jump. So in elementary school, when they wanted us to show our work, when it came to math, you can imagine how good I was at that. So that being said, then it, to me, what politicians, the corporate media, what activists and the agents of these different organizations, what they do together almost robotically, is take and co-opt something like George Floyd's murder 
take and co-opt something like the pandemic, the coronavirus, and wind it up in such a way that we end up being manipulated by being afraid and insecure. Because when we're emotional, it's easy to manipulate us. And then thinking about that, researching about it, going back and refreshing my knowledge of how fear um, can produce hatred and rage. Also, obviously, fear can produce then violence and destructive tendencies in each of us. But again, as a large group, there's that diffusion of responsibility. That's, that's why riots are riots. I started to look at it and tried to, uh, you know, step back and look at it objectively from 10,000 feet, look down on all of it and separate myself emotionally from everything and just observe and listen. And what I came back with, what I came away with was that there is a lot of propaganda flying around. There was a lot of propaganda flying around during the COVID epidemic, a lot of propaganda flying around during the impeachment trials, a lot of propaganda flying around during the Russia collusion investigations. And then COVID and now George Floyd and whatever comes next. We all know there's going to be a next. Because at least in my opinion, if things are bad now, if social rest is bad now, if discord is, is bad now, the closer we get to the election, the worse it's going to get. And the reason is because, of course, there are powers at work behind the scenes. There are cabals of people that run corporate media. And I'm not, that's not a conspiracy theory. That's a fact. Six companies run all of the media in the United States. That means that there are essentially six people, six men, I think, who determine all of the media that you and I receive from our TV sets that is an independent media. So the message is being chosen for us. It's like I've said before, when you go to the store, you shouldn't assume that you have a choice to buy whatever you want. You buy whatever the store stocks. You buy whatever the company that produces that product offers you to purchase. There may be 50 different kinds of peanut butter on the shelf for you to quote unquote choose from, but those 50 brands were chosen by the, chosen by the store, by the company based on a lot of market research and uh, supply and demand figures and so forth and so on. And so we have a limited amount of choice when we go to the store. We have a limited amount of choice when we turn on the TV. We have a limited amount of choice when we interact with one another socially. But how often do we take that step back, observe what's happening around us, listen, really listen, actively listen, and critically think from that 10,000 mile up vantage point and take in the information and say, hey, this seems an awful lot like groupthink. This seems like political speak to quote George Orwell. This sounds like a lot of propaganda is being thrown at us by these agents and by these groups and these individuals. And this propaganda seems to be driving us one direction or the other direction. And we seem to be, to use another person's term, useful idiots in these schemes, in these orchestrated plans, in these campaigns of discord and, and unrest. And so today then, I want to... I doubt it'll be interesting to see once I post this online whether the the author of this speech will get me flagged and get my article taken down. Facebook took down a picture that I had posted like six years ago. I just got a notification two days ago. They took down a picture I posted six years ago. It's a Photoshop of Adolf Hitler in a bow tie taking a selfie in a mirror with a, a iPhone. Obviously not serious. Obviously I'm not a Nazi or an Aryan or a white supremacist. 
I'm none of those things. And yet, because it's Hitler, it got flagged six years after the fact. I think it's kind of funny. It's mocking Hitler. But Facebook is Facebook, so it'll be interesting. To the point then, this is Joseph Goebbels, who was Hitler's minister of propaganda or minister of you know, telecommunications czar, if you want to put it in a more, uh, more uh, modern terminology, more current terminology. But Goebbels was in charge of the message. If you listened to the radio in Germany in 1941 or read the newspaper or went to the movies, Joseph Goebbels was the producer and editor and decider of what media was reaching your ears and your eyes. And so every year at Nuremberg, Goebbels would speak as a part of their big rally, their big pep rally. And in 1934, there's a famous movie that was entitled Triumph of the Will by Lenny Reifenstahl. And Goebbels gives a speech in that film in 1934 at Nuremberg. And the focus of his speeches was usually propaganda. And in this case, going back to the Nazis actually is, I think, beneficial and useful for us and helpful for us in the present tense because Goebbels essentially laid out the template. He wrote the playbook for propaganda, for how to manipulate groups of people, how to manipulate society that most governments and most military leaders have used ever since to the present tense. So I want to read some excerpts out of this because I think you will listen to this and you will catch what I catch, which is how relevant and current what Goebbels is saying is for us today. So let's just start with this. And I'll include a link in the show notes so that you can read this for yourself. The cleverest trick used in propaganda against Germany leading up to the Second World War, during the First World War, was to accuse Germany of what our enemies themselves were doing. Think about that. The cleverest trick used in propaganda against Germany was that their enemies accused Germans of what they themselves were doing. Don't look at us, look at them. We're not the bad guys, they're the bad guys. We're not the racists, they're the racists. We're not against progress, they're against progress. Even today, Goebbels says, large parts of world opinion are convinced that the typical characteristics of German propaganda are lying, crudeness, reversing the facts, and the like. One needs only to remember the stories that were spread throughout the world at the beginning of the war about German soldiers chopping off children's hands and crucifying women to realize that Germany then was a defenseless victim of the campaign of calumny. It neither had nor used any means of defense. How do you defend yourself against the accusation that you chop off children's hands and crucify women? It's pretty difficult because you are essentially being asked to prove a negative. You chop off children's hands and you crucify women. No, we don't. Prove it. Well, we can't because there's no children missing their hands and we, there's no women on crosses. Oh, so you disposed of the evidence is what you're saying. You hid the proof that you chop off children's hands and crucify women. Is that what you're saying? No, we're saying we don't do that. Well, prove it then. If you don't do it, prove it. You can't prove a negative. That's the brilliance of well-placed, well well-expressed propaganda is essentially good propaganda accuses you of being what the person accusing you is doing, and then they demand that you prove that you're not what they're accusing you of doing, which of course you can't because you're not doing it. And then they simply have to point and go, see, they can't, they can't disprove what I just said. That just proves 
that what I said is true. It's an interesting mind game. By not being able to prove what I said, you're proving that what I said is true. And thus you're left without a defense. The concept of propaganda, Goebbels says, has undergone a fundamental transformation, particularly as the result of political practice in Germany. Throughout the world today, people are beginning to see that a modern state, whether democratic or authoritarian, cannot withstand the subterranean forces of anarchy and chaos without propaganda. It is not only a matter of doing the right thing. The people must understand that the right thing is the right thing. Propaganda includes everything that helps the people to realize this. Propaganda's purpose and goal is to help people understand that the right thing is the right thing. So then, in the modern state, whether it's a democratic state or an authoritarian state, either governmental organization, authority, cannot withstand the subterranean, the underground forces of anarchy and chaos, without propaganda. There's no modern government then, what he's saying. No modern government can stop forces, groups, and movements from rising up from the streets and threatening to topple that government unless they use propaganda. So therefore, why are we shocked when a government uses propaganda against its citizens? Why are we shocked when military leaders use propaganda to sway us to believe that what they're doing is right and therefore it's right. If we invade this country or we attack these people or we go after that person, it's right. And then we will explain to you and tell you and convince you why that thing is right. And then you'll believe it's right because we told you it's right. Otherwise, you're the enemy. Again, prove a negative. Political propaganda in principle is active and revolutionary. It is aimed at the broad masses. It speaks the language of the people because it wants to be understood by the people. We call those people populist, by the way. That's the more modern term. A person who speaks for the people to the people or speaks to the people in the language of the people, we call them populists. Its task is the highest creative art of putting something complicated sometimes complicated events and facts, in a way simple enough to be understood by the man on the street. Its foundation is that there is nothing that people cannot understand, but rather things must be put in a way that they can understand. It is a question of making it clear to him by using the proper approach, evidence, and language. I do this all the time. It's something I learned in graduate school. When you study oration and you study rhetoric, you study public speaking when you take seriously the art of teaching and preaching and public speaking, how do you move an audience? How do you earn the trust of a group of people that they will literally allow you to direct their thoughts for them in that moment? How do you do that? I call it make them laugh, make them cry, make them sigh. I just need to make them laugh at the beginning, make them cry in the middle, and make them sigh at the end. And if I can do that, I know that I've won over my audience. Is it manipulative? 100%. Is it classic oratorial, oratorial um, skill? 100%. Did I learn it from Cicero? 100%. This is as old as public speaking. So what Goebbels is saying here then is that what I learned also in a more benign way and in a more, the intent was benevolent, not malicious, 
if you want to sway people, if you want propaganda to work, it has to be not only understandable to people, but it has to be in a language and use images and symbols that they're familiar with, that they can relate to, so that when you say, so therefore, in conclusion, it's obvious that I am right, they say, obviously. Uh, He speaks my language, he talks the talk, I understand what he's saying, he's a straight talker, he's a straight shooter, that kind of thing. One of the things that I had to do to learn as a preacher coming out of my dissertation and my graduate work, postgraduate work was, I talked like an academic because I had gone through, basically I'd got my bachelor's degree the first time, then went away, lived in Mexico, was a missionary, came back, kicked around a little bit, went back to school, got a second bachelor's degree, straight into the master's degree, straight into the PhD. So that's what, four, eight, so, my goodness, 1998 to 2007-ish, so almost 10 years. I was just straight academic work. So I hung out with academics, I was friends with academics, I associated with academics, that's pretty much all I did was academic work. So I thought and I spoke like an academic, which amongst academics was fine, that was all well and good, I spoke their language, I used their images and their symbols, we knew how to communicate with each other, and I was effective in that realm. But then I became the pastor of a blue-collar congregation, people that worked with their hands, and they couldn't understand half the things that I was saying. So even though they knew that I was smart, they knew I was well-read and knowledgeable, they saw my paper on the wall that proved how knowledgeable and smart and learned I was, which of course isn't true. I am well-educated, but that doesn't mean that I actually learned anything. In fact, most of what I've learned as a preacher came after I left academics. Once I escaped the trappings and the fetters and the chains of, of academia, I became a much better speaker and communicator, in my opinion, uh, because I started working on it and stopped taking for granted that I was just good at it because I had a whole bunch of paper on the wall, which I no longer have on the wall, one of the things I learned. It's just ego, man. It's all it is, all those papers, so that when people walk in, you say, hey, look at how smart I am. Look at all the squares hanging on my wall that are framed. I think I have like eight or nine. I don't even know anymore. It doesn't matter. They're in a stack somewhere. Point being, in order to speak to these people, blue-collar people, people that work with their hands, I had to learn their language. I had to learn to talk in the language of the farm and the ranch. I had to learn to talk in the language of the gun range and the bar, the VFW, the Lions Club. I had to learn to talk in the language of seasons and growing and slaughter and blood and dirt. And I did. And I am so grateful to God for that gift because it brought me back to the roots, to my roots, where I grew up at, the people I grew up amongst in north central Minnesota and on the Iron Range of Minnesota. Hard people who work hard, they play hard, they live hard, they die hard. And shout out to Hans Gruber. But the point is then that what academics had done for me anyways, is it had taken me away from my roots and made me into somebody that I wasn't. So it was like I was wearing a suit that never quite fit right. It was tailored, but it wasn't made for me. At least I never felt that way. So then when I got back to my roots as a pastor and started working backwards in reverse of undoing all the academic speak that I had learned, and then how to take the languages that I knew, take the knowledge that I had gained through study and research and writing, take what I had learned in those those hallways and in those lecture rooms and in those auditoriums, 
and grind it down and grind it down and grind it down constantly, day after day after day, purposefully, mindfully doing it, attacking myself, attacking my own lexicon, and just throwing out words wholesale. When I went back and re-edited my dissertation, for example, I chopped out 40 pages. I was just mercilessly savage with myself because going back after having been a pastor for five years and rereading my dissertation, in my opinion, there was just all, there was at least 40 pages of just purely masturbatory writing where I was just basically proving how smart I was. And once I chopped that out, I just went to work editing the text down and down and down until it became something that I was comfortable with. Then I put it in a three-room binder and I lost it again on purpose because I never want to read it again. That was just for myself as an exercise, a benchmark to say, well, here's where I'm at today. Here's where I was at five years ago when I originally wrote and published this. And maybe now five and a half years later, six years later, I should go back and just open it up and look at it again to see where I've come in the last five years and learn more. But for me, then, that's kind of the purpose of what Goebbels is driving at here. The goal is simplify, simplify, keep it simple, stupid, so that you make them laugh and you make them cry and you make them sigh. And then at the end, you say, that's why I'm right. And they all are so moved and you've earned their trust and you've moved their hearts and they've let you think for them for that moment so that then they kind of wake up out of a collective hypnosis and say, yes, absolutely, you're right. But you have to do it by making it clear to the person you're talking to or the group that you're talking to, this is the right approach. Here's the evidence for why this is the right approach. Listen to what I'm saying. Listen to my language. Listen to the images and the analogies and the similes and the metaphors I'm using. And now you can see clearly why I'm right. And those people are wrong. So Goebbels continues. Propaganda, propaganda is a means to an end. It's the vehicle that'll get you to where you want to go. Its purpose is to lead the people to an understanding that will allow it to willingly and without internal resistance devote itself to the tasks and goals of a superior leadership. If propaganda is to succeed, it must know what it wants. It must keep a clear and firm goal in mind and seek the appropriate means and methods to reach the goal. Propaganda as such is neither good nor evil. Its moral value is determined by the goal it seeks. Think about that. It's neither good or, nor evil, but rather how you use it. So therefore, you can't say, well, the propaganda, the message is bad. The idea is bad. The thought there is bad. No, the person who is expressing that thought, that person who is trying to win you over to accept their ideology, the person is morally evil. The language and the images and so forth, they are, they are neutral. But rather, it's a tool. Propaganda is a tool. Like I said, you can use propaganda for good. Sports teams do it all the time. Celebrities do it all the time. We do it all the time. Podcasting, it's a branding. You listen to this podcast because you, I have earned your trust. There's a certain amount of currency that I have, I have garnered from you, I've earned from you through speaking. And through my speaking and your listening, you trust me to a certain extent. And you give me permission to guide your thinking for a moment. That's a form of propaganda. If you support the podcast or share it with others and say, hey, you got to listen to this podcast or you got to listen to this guy in this one topic. I think it's really thought provoking or I think this is a good conversation or whatever. It's because I'm speaking your language. I'm saying something that you want to hear. 
or I'm challenging you to think about stuff that you want to actually be challenged to think about. Because if you didn't like it, you wouldn't listen. You wouldn't download it. You wouldn't support it. You wouldn't subscribe. You wouldn't share it. So propaganda happens all the time. It's just a question of whether we're aware that we're doing it and why are we doing it. Again, it's neutral. It's not good or evil. It's not morally right or wrong, but how we use it. I would argue, as I've said from the very beginning, that the purpose of my podcast is to leave a legacy for my kids to listen to after I'm gone and maybe my grandchildren or great-grandchildren to say, hey, here's your dad, your grandfather, your great-grandfather. Here's what he was thinking on June 6, 2020, or here's what was happening and here's why he read this. Or, hey, you know what? You guys forgot about Joseph Goebbels and propaganda, so maybe it's time for your generation to come back and read this. That's number one. Number two is to have a conversation with other folks that perhaps like me, don't have a lot of conversation partners that want to dive into these texts, that want to chew on this kind of subject matter, or just want to have these conversations with themselves and others. And so we can create this sense of community, this sense of togetherness, because, hey, we're all here, we're all around our speakers and our microphones, and we're listening, and we're having the conversation. And hopefully, it enlightens us, it lifts us above the density of the material and what's right in front of us. It opens our mind. It allows us to question. It allows us to step outside the group and say, I don't know if we're going the right direction. To be free, to be independent, to be individuals. So the concept then of public enlightenment, public enlightenment in terms of propaganda, is fundamentally different though. It is fundamentally defensive and evolutionary. It does not hammer or drum. It's moderate in tone, and it seeks to teach. It explains clarifies, and informs. It is therefore used more often by a government than by the opposition to that government. The national, the national socialist state, growing out of a revolution, had the task of centrally leading both propaganda and education, uniting two concepts that are related but not identical, molding them into a unity that in the long term can serve the government and people. And by the way, how this works in the United States, which has been discussed and covered by Neil Postman, who I highly recommend you go read all of his books, and also John Gatto, an educator. He's talked about this in his books. Again, I highly recommend um, John Gatto. Is it John Taylor Gatto? But this is, what are these, these, these two arms, propaganda and education, that the state uses to indoctrinate the population? Propaganda is the media. That's what Goebbels means. Like propaganda, he means media because he controls the media. And by education, he means public education. That the two arms of government propaganda are the media and public education. If you don't believe me, go read about German media and German education in the 1930s. If you don't believe me, read Gatto on the history of American education, specifically in the 20th century, specifically after World War II. The two arms of government propaganda in the United States to the present tense is corporate media and public education. As I said to my son a year ago, when the students were going to march out to the flagpole in protest of something, I can't remember what it was, and Owen asked if I thought it was a good thing or a bad thing that he participate in the, in the walkout. So I asked Owen, what do your teachers say? And he said they all encouraged it. They canceled classes for that hour. So then I asked Owen, if it's against school policy to leave school grounds during class time, you can, be, you can get a lot of trouble according to the school's policies. Why then are the teachers and the administrators of the school, the principal even, encouraging you to go stand outside by the flagpole in protest of something that Donald Trump said or did? 
And why then, when you go out to that flagpole, is the media there? Why are the local newspapers already there waiting for you? Why are the cameras already pointed at the doors when you walk out of the school? Who called them? Who was it that let the media know that the school was going to close down for an hour so kids could go out to the flagpole and protest? Then, after you've thought about those things, you make up your own mind. You decide for yourself whether you're going to stay in the classroom or go out to the flagpole. And in the end, he decided to stay in the classroom because he realized he was being manipulated by the school and his teachers to push a particular political slant. Propaganda, that's how it works. Indoctrination. You start school when you're four or five years old, public education, you're in front of a TV from the time that you're, well, actually with iPads now and phones, you're in front of a screen from the moment you're born, essentially. And what are you, what are you taking in? What are you digesting? What are you being fed through the media and through public education? Propaganda. A lot of other stuff too, obviously. But rather, that's the government's purpose for public education. The purpose of public education is propaganda, primarily. The purpose of media primarily is propaganda. If you, There's actually a book, and there's been plenty of articles written about how the Central Intelligence Agency, for example, uses Hollywood to manipulate the, 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 the masses, the citizenry, in regards to how we view the CIA, the FBI, the DEA, and so forth and so on. In fact, the CIA has an office in Hollywood. They actively engage in picking out scripts. I think one of the more famous cases was, I think it was called The Rookie with uh, Al Pacino and Colin Farrell. Was that the one? But anyways, it's about recruiting and CIA and so forth and so on. But there's plenty of them. You think of Clear and Present Danger, Patriot Games, The Born Identity, on and on and on and on. What we see influences and indoctrinates us in how to think and how we then view the Central Intelligence Agency or the United States government or police. When was the last time you saw a TV show that was pro-cop and then turned the channel and watched a TV show that was so blatantly anti-cop? That's not an accident. The writers, the producers, the directors, the actors, they're trying to convince you to believe that what you're seeing is a reflection of reality. It's the truth. It's the right way to think. And by watching those shows and those movies, by listening and reading uncritically, you are being indoctrinated. You're being brainwashed with a mind virus. You're being infected with a mind virus. That's politics. I'm sorry, that's politics. That's propaganda. But yeah, you can't have politics without propaganda. So to scroll further down, propaganda has a system too. It cannot be stopped and started whenever one wishes. In the long run, it can only be effective in the service of great ideals and far-seeing principles. And propaganda must be learned. There it is. It must be led only by people with a fine and sure instinct for the often changeable feelings of the people. They must be able to reach into the world of the broad masses and draw out their wishes and hopes. The The effective propagandist must be a master of the art of speech, of writing, of journalism, of the poster, meaning like posters, pictures, and of the leaflet, pamphlets. He must have the gift to use the major methods of influencing public opinion, such as the press, film, radio, to serve his ideas and goals. Well, I just actually just talked about that. There you go. Gifts. Memes. These are the leaflets and the posters of the 21st century. In the old days, they would print off those leaflets. They would put posters up on walls. You would have to go get a newspaper or you'd listen to the radio or go to the movies. And that's where you would receive a majority of your propaganda. Nowadays, go to social media. You receive your propaganda through funny memes, through satirical memes. And as a consequence, you are, again, swallowing, ingesting propaganda uncritically. 
because you're laughing at it and saying, well, that's super funny. I totally agree with that. That's, that's true. It's like I posted a meme of a group of people sitting around a table talking and laughing, and then in the center front of the picture is a dog, and one of the people at the table reached down and grabbed the dog's muzzle and held it shut. And then above the table, above the people, it says woke culture, and then next to the dog it says saying something that they don't agree with. And you look at that, and you either think it's funny because you agree that woke culture is cancel culture and they don't, they don't listen to anything that disagrees with their worldview, or you look at it and go, well, that's not funny because that's not true. Why would you do that? Why are you making fun of? Why are you mocking something like that? It's good to be woke. Depending on how you view that meme, you are going to be moved one direction or the other direction, but you're never going to stay in neutral. And the point of propaganda then is to essentially read the room, know your audience, know the nature of the feelings of the crowds, like he points out. You are the one who has to actively manipulate and control the emotions of the citizenry. Don't allow them... Think about it this way. Again, one for the third time. It's June 6th, 2020. Three weeks ago, Elon Musk tweeted about take the red pill. And it, it was retweeted tens of thousands, if not millions of times around the world. And people were saying, wait, I think this COVID-19 thing, it might be a form of political manipulation at this point. I think the Democrats are using this to stage a political coup to try and unseat Donald Trump and retain their power at the governor and the mayor level in the states. And all of a sudden, people started going outside and people started opening their business in violation of executive orders. And people started to sue the governors and sue the states. That was three weeks ago. Those same people that were saying, go outside, ignore the governors, ignore the mayors, they're authoritarian, they're autocrats, they're lying to us. Those are the same people who today are online because of the George Floyd killing, saying we all need to go outside and protest. We all need to go outside and riot. And I'm not, I'm not lumping them together. I'm saying there's like two groups of people and one are saying we need to go out and protest. The other group is saying we need to go out and riot and destroy stuff. And then there's a bigger group who are saying we need to listen to the governor and our mayors. They are the ones who can bring about legislative change. They can enact laws and they can do things within these communities that can change the systemic racism and the police forces, the systemic racism of the system, which is interesting to me because the system, if there is such a thing as a system and it is systemically racist, at the top of that system then are the mayors and the governors of these cities and states. Systems don't stop at the front door of the police precinct. They don't stop at the mayor's mansion or office. They don't stop at the governor's mansion or office. These are, if there is such a thing as systemic racism, the puppet master would be the mayor because he or she is the one who ultimately says to the police chief, say to the individual precinct commanders and then those, the foot soldiers, the, the police on the streets, this is what you can, you can shoot rubber bullets and fire tear gas at the crowds. Well, that doesn't, that goes all the way up to the top. That's not a small decision. That's not something that some precinct commander gets to make independent of what the police chief says and what he, the police chief is told by the mayor to say and what the mayor is being told by the governor or the attorney general of the state. This is a web, if anything. And by simply looking at one person or one group and saying, well, they're the problem, so we'll just get rid of them and we get rid of the problem. The people that created your problem are the people that you then turn to and ask to fix the problem. It's like asking the people you want to protest against for permission to protest against them. It's an oxymoron. But the power of propaganda is such 
that those politicians who got into office because they know how to read public sentiment, they know how to read a room, they understand how to manipulate people emotionally and get them worked up so that they're manip- they're easily manipulated. They're the ones who are going to take the photo opportunities. They're the ones who are going to show up here or there at the funeral or on the street for the protest. They're going to march over here or they're going to support this. My governor, for example, three weeks ago, essentially said that our constitutional rights aren't as important as people's safety and the health and well-being of the public. This whole week, that's all he's been saying from the microphone is that you have a constitutional right to peacefully protest. You have a constitutionally right to gather. Same person, what changed? Well, somebody started to light his cities on fire. And I would guess, whether you want to call this cynicism or not, I would guess that his primary voting blocks felt threatened and the money that got him elected said, you need to do something about this right now. And then the National Guard was called in and then a curfew was enacted and then there was lockdown and then things escalated. We see this all over the United States and all over the world right now. So if one were to take a step back and observe events, observe and listen to people speaking, not just in the short term, not just in the moment, but three weeks ago, three months ago, three years ago, what do we hear over and over again? What do we see over and over again? What types of, of behavior, what patterns do we, do we see from our leaders? Well, what we see is that they read the room and then they change their plans. They change their political opinion. They throw their political weight one way or the other, depending on the crowds. Because they want to maintain power. They want to maintain their influence. They don't want to give that up. Think about the types of people that are attracted to power. Usually those are the types of people who are least worthy of handling power, in my opinion. The person who runs away from the job, the person who says, yeah, I'm not the person for the job, that's the person that is for the job. Because you know that they're uncomfortable, you know they'll do a good job, because they won't allow that to infect them, hopefully. It won't brainwash them. They won't be infected with that mind virus to say, you know what? I kind of like this office. I kind of like the feather bed. kind of like the central air. kind of like people serving me food on a silver platter. I think I'm going to stay. Those, those are the people that revolutions get started over. But be careful then. When you look at a meme, whether you laugh or, or frown or grimace, if you look at a gif or jif, however you want to pronounce it, watch a film, watch a movie, watch a, you know, listen to a podcast, whatever it might be, are you simply saying to the person who's speaking, I give you permission to navigate my thoughts for me, to think for me for the next 30 minutes to an hour or three hours. Or are you listening? Are you listening critically? Are you using a filter? I do this all the time. The people that I trust, I don't really use much of a filter, but I still use a filter. People that I don't trust, I throw on a really thick filter because I never want someone to just crawl into my brain and start you know, pulling the strings of you're going to think this way from now on, or you're going to act this way from now on, or you're going to feel this way from now on. I've been there before in relationships, in jobs, in groups of people. I didn't like it. I was never satisfied. And once I got out of it, it was painful because there was a lot of fingers pointed at me. What's wrong with you? What's your problem? Everything's fine. But once I got out of it, oh, just the ability to be able to breathe and not be constantly frustrated, not be always angry, not be always fighting with my emotions and all the unhealthy habits that come with the negative emotions. It was great. I lost what I thought were friends. Turned out they weren't my friends. Lost coworkers, weren't my friends, weren't really. They, they didn't want me there for me. They wanted me there for what I provided for them. 
And I've been around too many bad leaders and too many bad coworkers and too many bad relationships at this point in my life to fall victim to that stuff. Because of course, we know that propaganda is used in abusive relationships at home, at the workplace, in school. Propaganda takes many different forms, but it's always active, as Goebbels says, and it always seeks to recognize the emotions of the person or people they're trying that are, you know, are affected and then move them one way or the other, manipulate them in such a way through our speaking, through our writing, through our imagery, our symbolism, so that they move left or right. Never, never downplay or undervalue the power of symbol. Again, the Nazis were masters at the power at utilizing the power of symbolism to sway and move the nation. This is particularly necessary in a day when technology is advancing, Goebbels says. Radio is already an invention of the past, since television will probably soon arrive. Listen to that. He's already anticipating the next form of media. And that's where he's going to put his focus and emphasis then. And that's what he's saying to the, to the Nazi party. We need to stop putting too much focus on radio. That's old school stuff. That's old technology. We need to affect the young. And if we want to affect the young, what I see trending is TVs, is television. Well, what is it right now? It's podcasting. Well, what's it going to be after podcasting? The people that understand that are the people that will have control of the message. <coughs> Excuse me. It seems like I always have to cough at least once per episode. Uh, what kind of kombucha do you drink? Go ahead and uh, text or DM me. I'd like to know what kind of kombucha you swear by. Because I like this health aid kombucha, pomegranate flavor. There's some I love, but there's too much sugar in it. And there's others that I don't like so much, but they're really good for me. So I'd be really curious, like, what kombucha do you drink? That's that, like, I like sweet kombucha. So my wife likes it super vinegary, but I like it sweet with a little touch of vinegar on the back end of my palate. Like, if you like that kind of, like, sweet, more, more sweet than sour or bitter, uh, shoot me a, a text or a DM or whatever and let me know what kind of kombucha you swear by, and I'll check it out. So let's scroll down to the end, since I just asked you about kombucha. <laughs> I just broke my train of thought. But this is the end of this then. Goebbels wraps it up. Of our population of 65,595,000, 16,511,000 were assisted by the winter relief. There were 150,000 volunteers. There were only 4,474 4, paid workers, of whom 4,144 we're in 34 regional party offices and 230 at the national headquarters. So for 65 million people, at the end of the day, it was really about 4,000 that did all the work of spreading this propaganda that were the agents of the, the Third Reich. Propaganda and education prepared the way for the largest social assistance program in history, the Winter Relief. Again, media and public education are the the, the tent pegs, the bookends, or the, the twin horns of government propaganda. They were the foundation, this social assistance program. Their success was that over a long winter, no one in Germany went hungry or was cold. We call that social services. Or, in Germany's case, socialism, national democratic socialism. That's what Nazi stands for. Over 40 million people approved of the Fuhrer's decision to leave the League of Nations on 12th November, 1933. That gave him the ability to speak to the world in the name of the nation, defending honor, peace, and equality as the national ideals of the whole German people. The issues of disarmament were put on firm and clear foundations. 
That is that after World War I, at the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was ordered to disarm and were not allowed to not only not have weapons, they couldn't build tanks or uh, plane, fighter planes or anything, anything that was, could be used for war. Weapons of mass destruction, if we would call them that today, or what's the other one? Assault weapons or what, what, what do they call the ARs now? I can't, they, they change the terminology so often. Anyways, the point being is that, again, nothing new under the sun. The Nazis did it to their people. Our leaders do it to us, Democrat and Republican, depending on their platform. It must maintain an unbroken relationship between leadership and people. That's the challenge here, is that the propaganda that comes from the top, from the Fuhrer, from Adolf Hitler, on down to the local offices, the regional managers, the agents of the Nazi party in Berlin of Adolf Hitler and his his people around him. Propaganda and education will prepare the way then. And the way that they prepare the way is through social assistance programs. It's cold in Germany in the winter. There's not a lot of food. We're We're coming out of a Great Depression. One of the reasons Hitler was so popular is because he raised Germany up out of a depression. He raised them up out of poverty. He started Volkswagen and Fanta and all of these different factories, all of these different companies to give German people jobs to go back to work, to give them pride in themselves, in their home, in their communities, in their nation, in their leaders. So then when Hitler, again, Hitler didn't just stand up in 1939 and say, we need to kill all the Jews, all the blacks, and all the gypsies, and all the homosexuals. No, the final solution came after he had already won the trust of the German people. And like Goebbels then said, once that happened, once they left the League of Nations and Germany was its own independent state, and Hitler then didn't have to answer to anybody, that's when he spoke on behalf of the whole German people because that's when he knew, okay, I've got them. I've got public goodwill. Now we move to enact our platform, our plan for domination, both in Germany and in the world. Hmm. No area of public life can do without it. It is the never-resting force, propaganda is, behind public opinion. Think about that. Think about how important that is to, to recognize and know this. The never-resting force behind public opinion is propaganda that is indoctrinated through public education and through the media. Public opinion, what we call public opinion, what's behind public opinion? Well, according to Goebbels, it's actually the full weight and focus and energy of the government working through the media and through public education and through social services the third arm, to bring the people together in such a way that they look to the leader, they look to the government and say, you raised us up out of our poverty and suffering. You raised us up and gave us pride in our communities, in our nation, in ourselves again. What you say, we'll do it. We'll worship you as a god. That's why, symbol, that's why religious symbolism is so powerful when it is not only used religiously, but used for propaganda in government and military movements. Religious imagery is very powerful. The symbology of religion is very powerful. Hitler understood that. He didn't invent it. He learned it from his predecessors. Everyone that's come after Hitler has used religious imagery in the same way. Because you don't just want people's attention. You don't just want their trust. You want them to worship you. Because religious zealotry is much more powerful than goodwill. That's why you see different movements in the present tense, the most obvious, I think, is the leftist movement, the far leftist movement in the United States, 
that it's gotten to the point where, as one friend of mine noted, they share more in common with jihadists than they do with the progressive politics of the 1960s countercultural movement, for example, or other countercultural movements, because they are zealous and they refuse to listen to anyone who has a counter opinion. And they will cancel and shut down and try and destroy, literally and physically, anyone who disagrees with them. It is a fundamentalist religious ideology at this point. It's a cult. It has its high priests. <clears throat> it has its religious rituals. It has a uniform. All of the trappings of religion are picked up and run with, because once you abandon God and say there is no God, or, or you turn your back on God, and once you turn your back on let's say, the church or the synagogue or the mosque or the temple. You don't just exist in a vacuum. You create a new god, and you create new rituals and new traditions. You create a new liturgy. You create new vestments, ways of dressing. You elect new high priests. You elect deacons and elders. You have acolytes, and then you have the laity. And you have your speeches, which are sermons. And you have your songs, which are hymnody. And you have your prayers, which is your chanting. It's all religious. Hitler knew this. Every great leader knows this. From the local level all the way up to the national and international level. That's the power of symbolism. That's the power of imagery. So in schools, public education, for example, there's symbolism as far as the government goes and how they indoctrinate kids into viewing the government of the United States, the president of the United States, the Congress and Senate of the United States, mayors, governors, policemen, firemen, EMTs, teachers, doctors, so forth and so on. These are powerful images, and they're used to indoctrinate children so that you grow up with an inherent distrust or trust of the police, an inherent trust or distrust of the fire department or doctors or EMTs or the president. Think about what Elon Musk has done in the last month for astronauts and for space travel. Up until SpaceX launched at the beginning of this past month, very few kids, if any, that I've ever talked to said, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. After the SpaceX launch this past month, I know a lot of kids who are like, that was so cool. I want to be an astronaut. I want to do that. Elon Musk made being an astronaut cool again. That's the power of symbolism. And Elon understood that. That's why he had them pull up the way he did in the vehicle that they were in and why he designed it the way that they had it designed. Everything about the launch, everything about the rocket, everything is branding. It screams propaganda. And we like it. Or we don't. That's also the opposite effect of propaganda. So then Goebbels wraps it up. Each situation brings new challenges. Each task requires the support of the people, which can only be gained by untiring propaganda that brings the broad masses knowledge and clarity. No area of public life can do without propaganda. It is the never-resting force behind public opinion. It must maintain an unbroken relationship between the leader and his people. Every means of technology must be put in its service. The goal is to form the mass will, and to give it meaning, purpose, goals, that will enable us to learn from past failures and mistakes and ensure that the lead national socialist strength has given us over other nations will never again be lost. May the bright flame of our enthusiasm never fade. It alone gives light and warmth to the creative art of modern political propaganda. Its roots are in the people. The movement gives its direction and drive. The state can only provide it with a new wide-ranging technical means. Only a living relationship between the people, 
movement, and state can guarantee that the creative art of propaganda, of which we have made ourselves the world's master, will never sink into bureaucracy and bureaucratic narrow-mindedness. Creative people made propaganda and put it in the service of our movement. We must have creative people who can use the means of the state in its service. It is also a function of the modern state. It, its reach is the firm ground on which the state must stand. It rises from the depth of the people and must always return to the people to find its roots and strength. It may be good to have power based on weapons. It is better and long-lasting, however, to win and hold the heart of a people. Which is exactly where we're at today, June 6, 2020. There is a fight right now between political parties, between powers and forces in politics, in media. There's a fight. And those who aren't paying attention, those who go, you know, allow themselves to be herded one way or the other are the useful idiots. They are the robots for these powers, these influences. Because they have already given their heart to the cause, to the movement, to the party. And the purpose of propaganda is to win their heart. I can force you to do something at gunpoint, but you're not going to do it willingly, and therefore you're not going to do it to the best of your ability. This is the great failing of socialism and communism, is that when you take everything away from people, redistribute it the way that you decide it needs to be redistributed as the, the benevolent leader, it doesn't leave people really motivated to work hard and do their best because they know no matter how hard they work, no matter whether they give their best or their worst, they're going to get the exact same amount of food, the exact same amount of living space, the, amount, uh, the same amount of privileges that they had before. Whereas if you can win a person's heart, they will literally pull the plow until they drop dead of a heart attack for you. Read Animal Farm by George Orwell. That's exactly what happens in that book. One of the characters, a horse, he is, his heart belongs to the farmer. His heart belongs to his master. And despite all the other animals saying, you're being used, you're being manipulated, you're a slave, because the farmer has his heart, which, by the way, he does by simply giving him an apple. He gives him an apple. He gives another horse a sugar cube and puts pretty bows in her hair. That's Orwell's point. If they just throw some bread at us, bread and circuses, they just give us a sugar cube once in a while, a sugar-coated lie, they'll win our heart and we'll vote the way that they want us to vote. We'll march in the direction they want us to march. We'll fight in the conflicts that they want us to fight for them because we are the useful idiots. We are the robots. Or we can revolt against that. We can enlighten ourselves. We can seek to enlighten ourselves. We can think for ourselves. We can question everything. We can refuse to go along with the group when we decide that the group is wrong and is not acting in the best interest of the group or society, we can step back and say, no mas, ya basta, that's enough. But we can only do that if we think for ourselves and we ask questions and we step back and detach and look at things objectively, not as we want them to be, but as they are. And to ask, how has the template that Joseph Goebbels laid out back in the 1930s and 40s, still being used and tweaked and augmented and updated today with the new technology that we have at our disposal. Once you can figure that out for yourself, in my opinion, you're going to be free. 
you'll be free in your mind. Therefore, you'll be free to see and to hear and to speak and to act. Free your mind and your ass will follow. Parliament Funkadelic. But that's the point. To go back and read this by Goebbels. One, it's just fascinating to see him say this and then go, oh, yeah, they're still using this, this playbook to this day. But not just the Trump administration. It's not just Republican or Democrat. It's not just Trump or whoever, or Biden or whoever. It's not just Democrat governors, Republican governors, mayors, council people, whatever. Every level of our society is infected with this mind virus that propaganda has, has done to us. We, we imbibed it through public education and through the media. We were brainwashed. And we are being brainwashed. Again, propaganda is an active campaign to win the hearts and minds of people. Because people who have given you their heart will worship you as gods. They will form a religion around you. And that's, to me, what's truly morally evil. That's to me, is what's truly satanic and demonic about propaganda when it's used for malevolent purposes is that if we can, again, rise above the density of what is material and look to the spiritual and ideological, what we'll see is there's a lot more powerful forces at work in our world than just what our five senses can grasp. So, yeah, I'll include a link, as I said. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the podcast, all of you. It's fantastic. I can't thank you enough. I'm so grateful for all of you being out there listening, and I hope benefiting from these podcasts. And if you like it, share it with other people. That's what I'd love to see. Love to see my average download listener uh, per week go up to, I think I'm at like 150 for downloads per week. So let's, I'd like to shoot for 200. That'd be kind of cool. That'd be a nice, nice round number to get to before I get to the one year anniversary of the podcast. But as always, for those of you who came along as I've gone, for those of you who have been here since the beginning, thank you so much. I can't begin to express my appreciation for you being a part of this and supporting what I'm doing here. And uh, as always, uh, thank you, and I love you, and I'll talk to you soon. Peace.